Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. My guest today is a serial startup founder, angel investor, public speaker, and an out-and-out successful entrepreneur. An expert in the fintech space, he holds a leading position in an organization that is the venture arm of Credit Scion, which is one of Japan's largest consumer credit companies. To add to this, he is one of the current Forbes 30 under 30 in the finance and venture capital category. An interesting conversation awaits my listeners today, but before we get into that, here is a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Eurus. Eurus Private Capital Forum is transitioning online with on-demand sessions offering attendees the utmost flexibility to access industry-specific content and deals on their terms. Launching this coming February, Euros 2022 will bring together 100 speakers from across Europe over a broad agenda covering private equity, venture capital, real estate and private debt. For details, visit www.eurosforum.org. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Chia Zheng Yang is a principal in the leading fintech-focused venture capital fund, Scion Capital, in Singapore. He manages Scion's investment team and last year scored 10 new investments across Southeast Asia, India and the USA. Chia has co-founded a number of organizations to include fintech angel operators, which we'll talk about in greater detail later, and the Shaper Impact Capital which is an impact investor media outlet connecting thousands of social enterprises and impact startups with many impact investors and angels globally. With a law degree from Cambridge, Chia was an early member of Antla, the global startup incubator, and the South Asian e-commerce startup Daraz, which was sold in 2018 to Alibaba for $200 million. Let's now have a conversation. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome Chia to Head's Talk. Delighted to have you here today. Hi, Elaine. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. Um, as stated in the introduction, we're going to talk about the FinTech Angel Operators. So please tell my listeners all about this. What are you doing as co-founder and what are you seeing that excites you? Yeah, absolutely. FinTech Angel Operators is a angel syndicate slash community Rolodex for FinTech founders who are looking to bring on board angels who are not just capital, but really value added operators and executives with real operating experiences um, across the region, across different business models. Mm -hmm. And what we are looking to solve here is the fact that, as you probably know, capital is cheap these days. We mm-hmm. really want to be able to connect founders who are looking for very deep expertise in fintech, which can be very complicated and complex, as you know. And one of the things that we're trying to do with fintech angel operators is grow an ecosystem of co-founders of unicorn companies, execs of multinational corporation, execs at uh, large institutions 
startup founders, et cetera, et cetera, to bring together their expertise to support startup founders who are mm -hmm. on their journey and looking for that value-added um, mm -hmm. uh, capital. We've so far been able to support quite a large range of companies and, 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 and startups, seeing quite a lot of them every month, being able to put checks across the US, across Africa, across Southeast Asia. And that's been a key goal um, of that project uh, for Tech Angel Operators. Mm -hmm. So, so what, what are you seeing that's excites you at the moment? Yeah, I think post-COVID, it has become clear that fintech has been one of the main infrastructure enablers for the rest of the world. And that includes things like very ordinary things like payments, ID verification, but also moving into the redevelopment of the financial system into crypto. And so we've been able to see quite a lot, a huge uptake of, of founders who are really starting up seeing the opportunity in the fintech space and also recognizing the value that operators bring. And we mm -hmm. see that quite a lot in the angel stage where ex-fintech um, executives, a lot of whom have seen pretty rewarding uh, paydays for their work, especially in the past couple of years, coming out, trying to support the next generation of founders, trying to give their operational experience and background back mm -hmm. to these founders. And so we've seen a huge boom of that fintech ecosystem in the past couple of years. Okay. No, that's fascinating. Let's focus on Southeast Asia for this question. You, you briefly mentioned it. Has fintech rapidly transformed um, many of the countries in that region's financial landscape and allowed them to bypass, leapfrog even, old traditional financial institution structures, you know, the slow pace, the rigidness. Are you seeing this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, <clears throat> I think that we see a huge boom in terms of what has emerged during this COVID period. So to give a specific example, mm -hmm. we, I believe, had something like 10 unicorns before COVID in entire Southeast Asia. I believe the number is now closer to 20 or 30 something um, now in Southeast Asia. So we've had a, a tremendous boom. Um, exactly, uh, or, or more. I don't have the numbers on hand, but it's, mm -hmm. it's roughly there. And the vast significant uh, proportion of that, I, I believe it's actually the majority of those new unicorns are all in the fintech space. And I think that's a reflection of two things. Number one, the state of digitization mm. of, a, of, of the economy has okay. meant that, um, you know, once you've, once you've built out initial e-commerce infrastructure that we've pretty much seen, being able to develop fintech infrastructure on, on top of that mm. uh, as the next wave of digitization um, has really entered its, its, its peak, entered um, uh, that stage of development in Southeast Asia today. Of course, a lot of that is driven by COVID. And the second is also a good understanding that in emerging markets, you tend to see markets which are what I call relatively shallow on a GDP per capita mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that being able to build the bridges and being able to monetize over, um, over fintech and financial services like lending, payments, et cetera, remains one of the most reliable ways for a business to make money in some of these shallower markets. Um, now to your question on bypassing old traditional financial yeah. institutions and structures, it's a really interesting question. I think that what we do see is actually a lot of collaboration um, 
the emerging markets is a very interesting thing. I think everyone knows the example of New Bank in Brazil and how they managed to bypass a lot of the institutions and banks that were um, extremely profitable, although not serving customers, I think, in the way that they could have. Mm-hmm. In Southeast Asia, I think we are in a little bit of a balanced state where in certain areas like banking, for example, we see more of a collaborative um, uh, structure in other places, like for example, um, retail brokerages, where we see a lot of very interesting things going on with customers looking for exposure into the retail public equities market. We mm-hmm. see a little bit more of a, 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 a disruption in, in that sense, as we see new brokers popping up, um, acquiring their own banks, acquiring their own licenses, being able to introduce products like crypto offerings to the consumers Mm -hmm. and doing things that we would not imagine banks in, for example, uh, places like Indonesia to offer. And I think that's one example of the type of disruption that we do see um, very, very recently in the past couple of years, uh, of which we already have a couple of uh, unicorns in that space in in places Mm -hmm. like Indonesia. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, so what about the, the, the other spectrum, the, um, the, the, the unbanked? I'm assuming those those unbanked are benefiting tremendously with this change. Absolutely. I think that's one of the largest opportunities that we have currently in Southeast Asia. So to give a, a rough sense, I believe something like 30% of, uh, of Indonesians are, are, mm. are, are probably banked. I need to double circle back with the number um, and also the definition of properly bank here. Mm-hmm. But the essential point I'd like to drive across is that the unbanked population across countries like Philippines, countries like Indonesia, and even countries like Vietnam um, mm-hmm. are areas where there is significant opportunity for us to continue to drive uh, mm. digitization, continue to drive financial technologies. And as we've seen, being able to bring them on board really helps to unlock the rest of the digital economy from a fin, yeah, um, coming yeah. from a fintech base, and that's something that that's really really exciting. Mm-hmm. What's driving, I think, a lot of the investor and founder attention for Southeast Asia at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, would you say that um, financial technologies in the sort of the digital economy are fund managers? Um, investors' primary interest in the region uh, and what category within sort of fintech um, is the most considered there? Yeah, it's a great question. I think what we've seen traditionally and what we see as the first stage of evolution for, frankly, all mm-hmm. uh, economies is you really see a initial focus on <clears throat> um, uh, consumer technology plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, so personal wealth management comes up a lot. You see a lot of lending plays come up uh, quite a fair bit. Uh, you start to see the first wave of merchant acceptance. So this is payment on digital payment platforms or mm-hmm. offline payment platforms mm-hmm. pop up um, along with the first wave of e-commerce. And what we are starting to see and what we're starting to, <clears throat> um, and anyway, we've seen some unicorns now pop up in the space, Credivo, Ajayat, um, a few examples of, of, of unicorns that have, that have popped up in that. Now, uh, what we are starting to see more and more and something that also gets me very excited is that once that initial wave of digitization of merchants, digitization of consumers has occurred, we typically see some of that B2B fintech infrastructure really start to break down 
as people have really been cobbling that together mm-hmm. in their own proprietary way. And so B2B fintech companies start to emerge to serve the more digitized merchants, to serve the more digitized um, e-commerce or fintech companies that have popped up. And so mm-hmm. we've recently seen quite a large wave of, of very interesting things in the B2B space. And I think on a separate note, another thing that makes me excited is also the mm-hmm. potential for crypto in emerging markets. Mm-hmm. We've seen a couple of unicorns in the crypto space pop up on Southeast Asia. I think some of the the obvious uh, famous ones include companies like Axie Infinity based mm-hmm. in Vietnam. So seriously, watch this space here, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. This is an interesting one um, for you. It's regarding regulations and what is and isn't in place, um, staying with Southeast Asia. What is the status of regulatory sandboxes in the region? Do some countries have it and others not? Um, how stringent and restrictive is this process? Can you compare two countries, which will give us sort of a feel of what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we're definitely still in the uh, early stages, but I think most people are extremely positive about the state of regulations at the moment and about mm-hmm. in the direction of where regulators are headed. I think one of the, the main things to, to understand is we are still building the infrastructure. Yeah. And so regulators, I think, are here to really understand how to ke- keep up with a lot of the tech changes that are happening around the world. And I think it's it's pretty positive to know that the regulators have been acting very positively in terms of permissive regulations, in terms of licensing, in terms of foreign ownership, we see quite a lot of very positive moves across countries like Philippines, Indonesia, Mm -hmm. which are working on, for example, their digital um, banking licenses um, as a a, a proxy. I think one area that I can compare since you're from the UK is probably around the data management and ID management um, framework, which probably best known as you know the open banking framework mm-hmm. um, in, in Europe. We're still in the midst of developing a lot of these plays um, and a lot of these frameworks for how this can 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 uh, really be rolled out in a collaborative way um, um, in certain countries like for example Indonesia, which is developing their own ID open banking um, mm-hmm. kind of framework for their fintech ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And we see a number of companies recently pop up like Financia, that is essentially the plate of Indonesia to help speed up this process and really democratize access mm-hmm. to inclusivity into data management um, for Indonesia. So it's definitely a, a work in progress for, for many of these countries. We're heading in the right directions. Um, we are seeing the launch of new licenses um, over the past couple of years, like the digital banking license regimes of Singapore that happened two years ago and Philippines that was recently announced um, a few months ago. And we are also seeing a lot more activity on that side um, in Indonesia um, for a wide range of industries. Hmm. So still in the embryonic stages, I suppose across the globe, it's still fairly new embryonic stages. Everything's quite fairly new. Um, okay. Yeah. Now, now let's look at um, big and well-known brands, the big tech brands, um, and how they are increasingly getting involved in this fintech boom, whether they are known to be in the financial services industry or not. They must be concerned with big tech involvement in this space. Uh, 
due to the fact that they already have incredible reach, abundant users, which they can leverage to, um, you know, drive higher adoption for their, for their financial service offerings. If it does appear uh, to be a little unfair, yes, I know capitalism, but it does appear to be a little unfair for fintech startups to compete with this. So, um, cheers. Tell us what is happening in this space and perhaps provide us with examples of the advantages the big techs may have, as well as the potential struggles fintech startups will have when they try to scale their businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's actually a really interesting dynamic, and I'm glad you brought up this question here for Southeast Asia. I think one of the things that gets missed a lot is that Southeast Asia is a dramatically different uh, ecosystem than in other places. Mm -hmm. uh, it has its own nuances. It's very different even from other emerging market, uh, markets like Latin America, like Africa, like India. And so there's a lot of nuance that, that big tech and big fintech companies uh, would need to understand when they're in this ecosystem. And actually as a result, we don't see too much um, <clears throat> massive adoption. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy to, to note um, for what it's worth that a lot of the fintech adoption in these different markets across Southeast Asia are really driven by local players. So as an example, if we think about um, um, payment gateways and digital payment gateways in Indonesia, it's really driven by a, a local player, which is now a unicorn called Zendit. Um, in Philippines, similar things. Uh, we, we see players like Dragon Pay really rise. Uh, we see things like digital wallets um, really emerge in a big way mm -hmm. in places like Indo. Indonesia, Philippines, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, of which there are, of course, no, no uh, proper big tech comparable, uh, global comparable for a digital wallet play. And essentially what that means is that um, I think big tech companies have, uh, uh, have to really collaborate uh, with, with the, the existing local players that exist in some of these markets. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give, I'll give a very specific example. So, um, I, I'm a huge fan of Stripe. I think Stripe has done amazing things, including in Southeast Asia, um, but they're really working on the local nuances for how they can obtain, uh, you know, <clears throat> a greater market share in places like Indonesia and places like Philippines, et cetera, et cetera, because the product offering is, uh, I think consumer demands are really different in some of these markets. Mm -hmm. And so what we do see are uh, really very strategic um, investments made by a number of big tech brands. We see um, folks like Stripe um, actively investing across the region, sharing their knowledge, sharing their expertise. We see players from China, like N Financial, being a very active investor into the ecosystem here. Again, sharing knowledge, um, investing, sharing expertise, but not necessarily displacing and, and, mm -hmm. and reducing the room for local fintechs to play in. And I think that's a very positive, interesting thing about Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and so the last point I'll make is that it's actually a little bit, um, I, I see big tech involvement in Southeast Asia as really a positive thing, being mm -hmm. able to bring that expertise, that knowledge, that ability to, and, uh, the ability to, to build systems that scale uh, and introducing those um, uh, to some of the local fintech companies which are occupying the ground. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned this a few times, you mentioned this word a few times, collaboration. So you're seeing more collaboration in that space as opposed to what, uh, you know, potentially hostile takeovers or other forms of takeovers from promising fintech companies. That, that's what you're saying, yeah? 
yeah, absolutely. We we actually haven't seen. We we certainly uh, I, I uh, <clears throat> there have been some high-profile mergers uh, in the news recently. I I think all of them were extremely positive for all parties involved, <clears throat> and I, I think that's a, a net plus. I think what we also want to appreciate is distribution is still very difficult in places like emerging markets. Consumer education is hard. Mm-hmm. Building brand trust which is especially important for fintech companies, it takes a while. Mm. And, and so um, any type, most of what exists today, I think um, when we're talking about relationships is really very collaborative. And I think that that's a very positive thing. In terms of actual takeovers, I think they've all been very positive um, so far. And, and I think one example, which I don't have any proprietary information of is in Thailand, we've recently had a <clears throat> um, crypto uh, exchange that mm-hmm. was, <clears throat> apologies, that was acquired by a local bank um, at a unicorn valuation, and I think that kind of that kind of um, um, uh, activity is a, a net positive for consumers. It's a net positive about the rewards for startup founders and operators, and also a net positive for some of these existing institutions mm-hmm. that are clearly very motivated to revamp their product offerings to digitize themselves. Okay. And, you know, with this sort of tectonic change in banking and finance with regards to traditional banking practices, what do you think will become or has become obsolete from old banking modus operandi um, as a result of some of the, the FinTech applications? Note, not what will be automated, but what will no longer be required. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that we will still see, we'll still need a lot of services that banking offers. I think a very easy way to think of a bank, it's really a financial conglomerate, a Mm -hmm. financial service conglomerate. And so I think really the only thing I can think of that will really go away in a huge way is um, physical uh, branch banking. Um, I think we've, start, we've started to see quite a lot of, of things go online. We've seen mm-hmm. um, agent banking models, um, which are really distributed um, mm-hmm. uh, banking as a service models where mm-hmm. shopkeepers, for example, mm-hmm. can, can, can be your, uh, help you take in deposits, help you um, conduct financial service transactions. Uh, we see a lot of that pop up. Um, as the version one of, of a, a lot of digitization mm-hmm. across some of these countries. We've seen a lot of traction on that side. We see increasingly, as regulations have become increasingly more permissible in the past few months and years, um, digital banking licenses um, uh, or digital banks really emerge. And so I think we're starting to see that consumers are more savvy about their financial service needs, not mm-hmm. necessarily requiring face-to-face interaction to conduct any of these mm-hmm. businesses anymore. And so I think that that's one huge area that is certainly under threat and certainly um, a mm-hmm. lot of banks are, are starting to be uh, very wary of, of um, what that offline physical interaction might look like going forward. All right, okay. Um, this final question on Heads Talk will be asked to all um, the guests for this series. So we should get interesting and hopefully contrasting answers to this question. Okay, what is the new fintech app that you, uh, Chia, cannot do without and why? 
That's an interesting question. Uh, I think one of the uh, new fintech apps that I can't uh, go without is certainly um, one of the super apps um, in the region, um, which is called Grab, which uh, disclaimer uh, mm -hmm. our fund invested into um, on the Grab financial side of things, where you know Grab is essentially like the Uber of Southeast Asia, um, and they now have a lot of different product offerings like food delivery, logistics services, um, mm -hmm. but they also have a lot of fintech applications and product offerings that frankly, I would definitely not know how I would live without, um, including um, payments, including uh, a, a wallet for me to do uh, my day-to-day -day, uh, shopping. Mm -hmm. um, most most uh, merchants and uh, um, accept uh, grab pay and we, we see a lot of uh, if you want to buy food online if you want to if you want to take a ride you have to go through the grab um, ecosystem and I, I remember you know um, there was a couple of weeks um, a couple of months I think where, where I was stuck in lockdown in Singapore and I was essentially um, channeling all my expenses through grab <laughs> um, which was which is amazingly hilarious because I, I could see my 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 salary come into my account mm -hmm. and all my bank transactions and expenses were completely uh, going to grab for a number of different things for grab related services but also using grab as a means to really pay for items and so i think um if you if you remove grab from my for my account i i, I think i'd struggle to really um, operate and, and, and pay for, for things and conduct transactions in mm -hmm. Singapore. And so that's one, uh, I think, very interesting fintech guest um, app that I cannot do without. All right. Okay. That's interesting. And there's a part two to this question. And uh, I'd be interested in your answer for this one. So what is the solution that you think has yet to be developed, but sits firmly within the fintech world once available? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this might seem a little bit out there, so I want to give a little bit of context first. I think uh, I've talked a little. I've talked a lot about merchant acceptance. I've talked a lot about payments. I've talked a lot about um, how we're slowly transitioning out of um, 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 existing infrastructure, etc. I think one of the things that I had not talked about was the fact that we are actually moving. One piece of technology that is leapfrogging existing fintech infrastructure is in the crypto space. And an example of that would be how quickly, for example, um, countries like the Philippines um, uh, moved to uh, adopt crypto on a consumer level. And that became really the, uh, for a lot of folks, um, one of their main ways of conducting transactions, of, of, of engaging with others and exchanging value. And so we're seeing a huge leapfrogging of crypto in some of these emerging markets where traditional finance potentially have, have not um, even yet to penetrate. And one of the analogies I think about this is like the e-wallets that we saw leapfrogging um, credit cards in China. Mm -hmm. And so one of the solutions that I think has yet to be developed, um, but sits firmly within the fintech world is really um, um, a very niche um, play, which is um, accounts uh, management, so accounting backend, SaaS for mm -hmm. a lot of these and individual entities and also businesses who are conducting a lot of uh, transactions um, uh, through crypto. So we're thinking about APAR, 
um, understanding, doing reconciliation, I think um, is always the most painful thing in the world. Mm -hmm. um, if anyone has ever touched that and I try my best to avoid it. Um, and that I think is one of the most seemingly boring, seemingly unsexy, seemingly very traditional um, <laughs> plays that, that needs to exist for further institutionalization of, of the crypto economy, which I'm bull of. All right, interesting. Thank you for that. Are you excited about times ahead? Absolutely. I think we are in a tremendous, um, tremendously exciting place in the VC world, in the tech yeah. world uh, for emerging markets. I think we've not seen um, as much capital being poured into some of these regions. So we're definitely going to see a very transformative um, uh, next few years ahead. Uh, I, I, I totally agree with you there. Chia Zheng Yang, many thanks for your time and insights. Yeah, no, all good for me. Um, it was a nice chatting. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.